I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open with me to Exodus chapter 15 as we continue to work our way through this Old Testament book of Exodus. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 21. This passage can be found on page 57 in the pew Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Uh, we just sang a song of thanksgiving, and that is what we have here in Exodus uh, chapter 15. God has rescued His people, the Israelites, uh, from slavery uh, in Egypt. He has rescued them once again from the uh, Egyptians who were coming after them to to, to grab them, if if not kill them uh, in the desert. God has brought them through the divided waters of the Red Sea and closed those waters, uh, killing uh, much of the Egyptian army. And now it is time for thanks, which they do, apparently, immediately, and spontaneously. So let's look at this passage together, Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. 
Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And thus far, God's holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our God, we thank you that you indeed are a great and mighty God. We thank you that you do and you will triumph over all of your enemies. And so, O God, we pray that you would write your word on our hearts this morning, that we might give thanks and rejoice in you, our mighty God. We give you thanks and praise through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Singing praise to God is central to the Christian life. It is central to Christian worship. We are repeatedly exhorted in God's Word to praise the Lord. In fact, we're told two times in Paul's letters that we are to worship the Lord with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our hearts. And it is no coincidence that right at the heart of our Bibles, if you open up the Bible to the center, uh, basically, uh, maybe slightly off center, what do you open it to? The longest book of the Bible, the Psalms, God's inspired hymn book is the longest book in the Bible. Well, also to worship with the whole person, with all of us, with all that is within us, we bless God's holy name. Singing is one way that we involve our hearts, our emotions in the worship of our God. The wonderful pastor, writer, uh, preacher, leader, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who God took home, in our opinion, we might say, certainly not in God's providence, way too early. In one of his last sermons, I talked about music, and he described it this way. Music is a gift from God that allows us to express our deepest heart responses to God and His truth in meaningful and memorable ways. It is a case of our hearts joining with our minds to say yes, yes, yes to the truths we are embracing. 
Dr. Boyce said. Not only is singing commanded, but as Dr. Boyce put it, it is also a gift. It is something that flows from thankful hearts. And that's exactly what we see here in this song. This song has been called the the Song of Moses. It's been called the the Song of the Sea, and rightly so. There is a good uh, warrant for that. I'm going to call it this morning, as the title uh, in your bulletin uh, says, the, the Song of the Lord. Of course, every song in the Bible could be called the Song of the Lord, but I'm going to call it that this morning. I'm taking my privilege as the one who... Uh, titles sermons and puts them in the bulletin. Actually, Rebecca puts them in the bulletin. I tell her what to put in the bulletin. It's the song of the Lord. Why? Because it's inspired by Him and it's all about Him. That's what I want to point out this morning. It's all about Him. He is the focus. No human being is mentioned. Moses is not mentioned. If you look at the end of of chapter 14, It says, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. But in the song itself, there's nothing about Moses. It's about Moses singing. We see Miriam and the women singing. But this is all about the Lord. Salvation is all of God. And basically, we can divide this passage up into... Uh, three parts. Verses 1 to 6, praise God, essentially. Again, roughly, there's some overlap. We, it praises God for His salvation. 7 to 12, it praises God primarily for His judgment on His enemies. And in 13 to 18, it praises God uh, for His leading them to their home, which is still in the future. So first of all, we see in verses 1 to 6, praising God for the salvation of His people. But let's look first of all at the introduction in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying... Now, I'm not going to get into, you don't even want to know about... Uh, the Hebrew verbal construction here, but to sum it up, the verbal construction essentially points to the fact that the action here, then the people sang, took place at that approximate time. Or as Dr. Currid puts it in his commentary, many of you who are new here don't know, may not know Dr. Currid. I'm constantly referring to Dr. Currid. He wrote a commentary on Exodus. He was an RTS uh, Charlotte professor and Jackson professor, Charlotte professor, and, and was on staff with us here for a while at Sovereign Grace for You Newbies. Dr. Currid puts it in his commentary that this, in other words, was a spontaneous and immediate reaction to God's wondrous work. It is as if the people could not help but break forth into song. Could not help but break forth into song. Then they sang. And notice also it says here the ESV translates the people of Israel. Literally, the Hebrew says the sons 
or the men of Israel. Now, sometimes in context, that could include the women. But if you look at the very end of this, we see that Miriam and the women are going out with tambourines and they're singing, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now some scholars have said, well, this is a separate song that then Miriam and the women go out after and sing. Well, I don't think, and many commentators do not think that that is what's going on here. What seems to be happening here is that that Moses and the men are basically singing the verses and Miriam and the women are singing the chorus because basically the chorus essentially repeats the first several lines. And so that's essentially what we've got here. So it is the men of Israel who are singing the song with the women at the end singing the chorus. The whole congregation is singing uh, together. You know, one of my highlights of my year is on Easter Sunday when we sing that glorious Easter hymn, Sing Choirs of New Jerusalem. And on that glorious chorus, when the men sing one part and the women sing the other, oh, I get tingles. We've got something like that going on here. And notice here, this is corporate singing, but it is also individual. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. Much like amazing grace, we sing it corporately. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Each one of us individually have been saved by God, but together we sing. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. How has He done this? The horse and the rider He has thrown into the sea is the way it reads. Now, of course, this is, this is not exactly what happened in the account The sea literally came back over uh, them. And it wasn't even really just the uh, horse and rider. There were actually chariots there. And there there was an army there as well. But remember again, what is this? This is poetry. This is not narrative. And so a lot of things are not quite the exact uh, detail. But the image here is a wonderful image. They are at God's disposal. God can do what He wants with them. God can toss them away as if they are a piece of paper. Throw them into the sea is what the image tells us. They are in God's hands to do as He chooses. He can save He can destroy. And that's what he does with this Egyptian army. In verse 2, the song goes on, The Lord is my 
strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. My God, my father's God and I will exalt him. Having a a godly heritage is a wonderful thing. I can attest to that. Wonderful to have a a godly heritage. But it's also important for you young people that we make God my God, our God, to be ours, to trust, to worship Him individually. And then verse 3 refers to the Lord as a man of war. The Lord is His name. A man of war might be troubling for some. Christ called himself uh, the Prince of Peace, or he's called the, the Prince of Peace. Yet to establish peace, he had to wage war. And he will wage war until the very end. The very end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19, Christ comes as a warrior with an army, with a sword to make war. The God of the Bible is often referred to as a, as a divine warrior, described as a divine warrior. He is often called the, the Lord of hosts which literally means the the Lord of armies or the Lord of warfare. That description we find over 200 and almost 250 times in the Bible. Isaiah has a vivid depiction of the Lord as warrior. In Isaiah chapter 59, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He's dressed as a warrior to bring judgment on his enemies. And this is, in fact, what he does as we see in verses 4 and 5. And all of this, as verse 6 says, by his mighty power referred to here as his right hand. God and God alone has done all of this. Our salvation is in God. Our spiritual strength is in God and in God alone. I mentioned, I think in a recent sermon that I've been rereading, read it for the first time about 25 years ago, rereading now uh, the classic Puritan William Gurnall's book, The Christian in Complete Armor, which is really an extended, very extended reflection on Ephesians 6, 10 to 18 on the armor of God. And he says this at at, at one place, the strength of the general in other hosts or armies lies in his troops, but in the army of saints... The strength of every saint, yes, in the whole host of saints, lies in the Lord of hosts. Our strength is in God alone. To Him be praise. 
Secondly, we see praise to God for His judgment on His enemies. Salvation and judgment regularly go hand in hand in Scripture. We see striking language once again in this with regard to God's judgment. Verse 5, floods covered them. They went down into depths like a stone. Uh, Verse 6, God's right hand shatters the enemies. Verse 7, God sends out His fury. It consumes them like stubble. Verse 10 says, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. I want to go back to this word stubble in verse 7. It's often used in the Old Testament for the aftermath of judgment. Stubble is often used for the aftermath of judgment. Alec Motier says it's, it's used as a picture of the speed and irresistibility of divine hostile action or divine judgment. In some ways, perhaps it's also here a certain, there's often a certain, perhaps an irony, a poetic justice, if you would, because this same word stubble, you may remember from earlier in the book of Exodus, that the Israelites were forced to gather stubble, same word, when they had to make bricks for the Egyptians. And notice this stubble is consumed, as verse 7 says, by God's fury, His burning Anger, or as the New Living Testament puts it, his blazing fury. Actually, again, it's the opposite that consumed them. It wasn't fire, it was water that killed them. But again, this is poetry. God does reveal himself by as fire. We've seen it, the burning bush, the fire by night, but also it is used of of His judgment, oftentimes in Scripture. Here it is, his, His burning anger. Some Christians balk at this idea. We don't hear many sermons preached today like Jonathan Edwards' sinners in the hands of an angry God. But it's clearly taught in the Bible. Psalm 7, God is angry with the wicked every day. Is it right for God to overthrow Egypt in His anger? I made a a point and always exhort parents never to discipline in anger, never to discipline their children in anger. Make sure they have their emotions under control, their anger under control before they disciplined their children. 
But we also need to remember this. God's anger is a holy anger. It's always a holy anger. It's not like sinful human anger. God does not lose his temper. God does not fly off the handle. What is God's anger? God's anger can be defined this way. It is his settled opposition to all that opposes him. His settled opposition to all that opposes him. His anger is just. It is right. It is true. And in the end, it means that justice and righteousness will prevail. It's not popular today. It's not preached from many pulpits today that God is an angry God, that God judges. Doug Stewart writes in his commentary, modern sentimentalist thinking wants God to be ever tolerant, always soft-hearted, and thus defines God's justice as something other than how the Bible defines it. In fact, the just God revealed in the Bible will not tolerate evil. Though he is extremely patient in waiting for repentance, as he was for at least 80 years with the Egyptians, and plans for its eventual, eventual total elimination. People who insist on being part of the process of evil will be eliminated as well. And ultimately that means heaven or hell and eternal punishment. Third and finally, we see in our passage this morning, praise to God for leading His people to their heavenly home. He says in verse 13, the passage goes on, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. God saves, He destroys, and then He leads. We can quickly trace here the, the way He leads them. He says in verse 13, He leads to God's holy abode. We don't know for sure if this is, means Mount Sinai, where they're going to encounter God first and God is going to give Moses the Ten Commandments, or whether this means their ultimate home, Palestine or, or Israel. Verses 14 and 15 are the lands that, that Israel is going to pass through. We see here Philistia, Edom, Moab, and ultimately in 15, the inhabitants of, of Canaan itself. Uh, these are our future Although here at the beginning, it's expressed as if this is already a, a done deal. Why? Because God has promised the land. And it, it is a done deal in one sense. If God has promised, He has given it to us, even though we have not yet fully received it. But notice especially verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love... 
the people whom you have redeemed. Any of you are familiar with this term, but this this idea of God's steadfast love, the wonderful Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. It actually has a little at the beginning. Chesed. We can just say chesed. Don't spit on the person in front of you. Never-ending covenant love over 250 times in the Old Testament. It's actually in many ways hard to translate because it carries a, a weight of meanings. Love, faithfulness, mercy, goodness. Some translations read steadfast love, some loving kindness, etc., etc. We see it later when God reveals himself and proclaims his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or it's the same word used by the writer of Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's love and God's care for His people never ends. And God will lead them, as He does Israel, all the way home. In the movie Justice League, Ben Affleck plays Batman. And as Batman, Ben Affleck says this, wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody who can save us from all this? Save us from ourselves? Save us from the consequences of our actions? And save us from people who are evil? Wouldn't it be nice? It would be. Wouldn't it? And brothers and sisters, we who know the Lord Jesus Christ know that there is. The world longs for what God has already provided because they are part of the problem. (laughs) They refuse to admit and recognize that they themselves are in need of a Savior and need to be saved from their sins. God saved His people from slavery, from the evil desires of the Egyptians. But even better, God saves His people from slavery to sin and from eternal death. Not surprisingly, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 15, there is a scene of saints who are around the throne of God, and it's striking what they are singing. They are singing two songs, it says. They sing both the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, 
O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What do they sing? The song of the first great redemptive act and the song of the greater climactic redemptive act that truly saves God's people for all eternity. And one day, brothers and sisters, we will join around that throne in singing these songs of salvation. What a glorious day that will be. Let's pray. Oh God, how great is your salvation on behalf of your people. How great it is to sing of your great works, to rejoice in what you have done for us. You have done it, O oh God. We have done nothing. We deserve your wrath. We deserve to be thrown into the sea, buried under its waters. But you have drawn us to yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we give you thanks and we give you praise through Christ our Lord. Amen.